This episode of The Energy Pipeline is sponsored by Caterpillar Oil & Gas. Since the 1930s, Caterpillar has manufactured engines for drilling, production, well service, and gas compression. With more than 2,100 dealer locations worldwide, Caterpillar offers customers a dedicated support team to assist with their premier power solutions. Welcome to the Energy Pipeline Podcast with your host, Casey Yost. Tune in each week to learn more about industry issues, tools, and resources to streamline and modernize the future of the industry. Whether you work in oil and gas or bring a unique perspective, this podcast is your knowledge transfer hub. Welcome to the Energy Pipeline. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Energy Pipeline Podcast. As our guest today, we're fortunate to have Richard Sanders, consultant and manager at RES Services, LLC of Mustang, Oklahoma. Welcome to the Energy Pipeline Podcast, Richard. We're thrilled you took time to visit with us today. Thank you, sir. I appreciate being here. Good to see you. Good to see you. Richard, I believe we met over 30 years ago as instructors at the old Southern Gas Association Inspector Short Course. And you know full well I've been leaning on you for regulatory guidance ever since. So for those people who haven't been calling and asking you a question once a month for the last 30 years, can you take a few minutes to share a bit of your background with our listeners? You bet. Uh, uh, Like a lot of folks, uh, back in the early 60s, struggled to get through school. Once I got out of school... I went to work for Mississippi Valley Gas, which is an Atmos property. Now, uh, they were a medium-sized distribution company covering facilities in the state of Mississippi. And I was lucky enough to work in all kinds of departments. I worked in general office engineering. I worked in district engineering. I worked in the meter and regulator shop. Uh, I did just a little bit of everything. I had a high-pressure Mueller stop-off work. Uh, I was responsible for corrosion requirements when I moved out into the district. So I, I got a pretty good background of what uh, building pipelines and operating pipelines at Server were. Uh, and I spent about 11 years with them. Then I left that and went to work for the Mississippi Public Service Commission as Pipeline Safety Chief uh, for that program. I started coming to Oklahoma City to the DOT training and found that I could be helpful since I had those field experiences and left the state and went with the federal government as an instructor and ultimately became the director of the training program here in Oklahoma City. So it's been a a wonderful career, lots of good friends, and uh, hopefully uh, we've made it through this regulation as we'll talk about. Yeah. Well, good. Good. Well, thanks for for that background. Mississippi boy makes it good. There you go. So now I know there are 50 titles in the U.S. Code of Federal Regulations, and Title 49 addresses transportation. Title 49's got nine volumes, 12 chapters, and almost 1,700 parts to it. You and I, for the past 60 years, 
have been living our lives, our professional lives, in 10 of these almost 1,700 parts, dealing with the design, construction, operation, maintenance of pipeline systems, right? You know, 60 years in, in 10 of these 17 parts. So could you go through these 10 parts and, and touch base on, on each one of them, how they pertain to us? Yeah, yeah. Let me let me back up this step two as we go here, KC. Uh, let me ask the question that everybody should have in their mind. Why do we have a federal pipeline safety regulation? And that question is loaded. Uh, right off the bat, the word federal is thrown in there. And if you know anything about the regulations, pipeline safety regulations in Part 192, that we're going to be talking about today. Uh, the feds is just one part of it. Uh, the, there are 52 state entities that have pipeline safety regulations, and as long as those regulations are equal to or greater than DOT, everything's fine. So as an operator, depending on the type of operation you got, you may have to deal with both. Or if you're an intrastate within the confines of the state, you would deal with the state regulators. So keep that in mind. But that said, uh, the pipeline safety regulations came about August 12, 1968. The Natural Gas Pipeline Safety Act of 1968 was passed. So if you take 1968 and 2024, this year we're in, about 55, 56 years on the average. And, and that's something to keep in mind as we talk through this today, because you're going to find there are 134 amendments to this regulation today, which means you've got about 2.5 uh, rule changes a year. So by no means, this is not a stagnant regulation. It is moving on, and it is a headache to keep up with uh, in most cases. Well, dynamic flow is always tougher to, to uh, model than static flow. So fair enough. That, that's I, I get your point. I get your point. I, can, can I just kind of launch into why? Let's answer that question. And if, if I tell you... Back March 18, 1937, the New London, Texas explosion of a schoolhouse killed 298 children. Mm -hmm. That's something that shook us. March 1965 in Nacogdoches, Louisiana, there was a transmission line explosion that killed 17. January the 13th, 1967, New York City they had to call out 63 fire companies to put out fires that led to seven injuries and 19 families with no homes. So February the 16th, 1967, the president sent to Congress a message about his concern with pipelines. And need I say more? August the 12th, 1968, the Natural Gas Pipeline Safety Act was enacted. 
a couple of points, and we won't get into the weeds with this, but basically it said as soon as practicable, but no later than three months after the enactment of this act, the Secretary shall, by order, adopt the interim minimum federal safety standards for pipeline facilities. That interim regulation was Part 190. Please do not get Part 190 interim regulations confused with Part 190. As we talk through this, we'll see that they're two different animals. But Part 190 today is the enforcement and regulatory procedures part. So there's certainly a big difference in this. And I I have to say, since I was around back during that time, uh, working with an operating company, that we were running around trying to figure out what we were going to do and how we were going to do it and what was the best way to do it, et cetera. So we were going to a lot of uh, meetings, with AGA, SGA, whoever and whatever we could get to, to kind of see what everybody else was going to do. So I can remember like it was yesterday that uh, some folks were going, ah, don't worry about this. This thing won't be around four or five years. We'll get another president and we'll get this thing out of here. So uh, I can tell you that didn't hold yeah, true. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, 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 but that said, again, one of the comments was going on, what the heck are they going to do to you? You know, that was the kind of stuff that we were hearing and talking about and what have you. Let me assure you, if you go back and look at the original document, there is a section, criminal penalties, general penalties, a person knowingly and willfully violating sections of this title or a regulation prescribed or our orders issued under this chapter shall be fined under Title 18, imprisoned for no more than five years or both. Well, thank goodness that's not been enacted very yeah. much. There are so, some cases where there have been uh, fraudulent records doctored that got people in trouble there. But most of the time, there's a civil penalty or there's a letter uh, sent to require an operator to take corrective action in a time. Sure. So, so, so kind, of, kind of the beginning. So, so, so all, all to be said here, uh, there, there were a number of accidents, uh, a couple of them there uh, in 66, 67. Uh, you mentioned New York City and, and the challenge there and Natchitoches. Uh, Louisiana in, in in that time frame, and of course, I remember the the schoolhouse in the 30s. That's where mercapitin started to be required to be put into natural gas, so that you could smell that natural gas uh, before it got to its explosive limits. But essentially, we had accidents. The president got upset, went to Congress. Congress got upset, put this. Uh, this act together and basically said, thou shalt do it. Those who didn't want to go along with it, that the thou shalt do it had a big stick behind it to, to basically put them in the line. Let's, let's, so, so, you know, eh, you know, one thing begets another, begets another, begets another. I, I totally get that. Um, so, so let's talk about 192 in particular and how it evolved. Now, 
the federal regulate uh, federal regulators didn't start with a blank sheet of paper and start writing 192. Can you can you talk about the history of 192 a little bit? You bet. Uh, we talked about just moments ago, Part 190 was the interim regulations. Basically, well, no, basically to it. It was that the uh, industry's documents that they had uh, out there that could be pulled together, the uh, GPTC is a term you hear, Gas Piping Technology Group uh, had the old uh, ASME B31-8 regulations, which didn't have uh, time cycles and stuff in it. That was things that had to be developed in the original Part 192. But that became the interim regulation, ASME B31 uh, code, if you will, Part 190. And it went through until Part 192 was published. And, and I mentioned GPTC, a great organization of uh, regulators and industry and uh, general interest people, et cetera, that try to write guideline material for the different requirements within the regulations, whether it's part 192, 195, 193, et cetera, uh, they are, are there to help try to write guidance. It's not always possible. And if you look at it, you'll see that there's a lot of areas never been addressed or they didn't see the need for it, that the regulation was appropriate as is. But uh, you need to be careful. It is not adopted by the regulation, and you can sometimes get in conflict uh, between... I got you. So when 192 was being created... Uh, was there a collaboration, uh, a great collaboration between the regulatory people and industry to to come up with, with 192? Or was it all done in a back room somewhere and the regulatory people said, this is this is the way it's going to be? I, I guess you really could say yes to both of your comments. But yes, it was open to the public, any and everybody that wanted to participate and talk about uh, what should be done, shouldn't be done, should be incorporated, shouldn't be incorporated, uh, had their opportunity. And uh, Joe Caldwell, Will Jennings are two names that pop up that, thank goodness, I had the opportunity to know and, and gain knowledge from uh, when I was getting started out in this. And they worked diligently with industry and the regulators and Congress and the states, et cetera, trying to get this pulled together. I got you. I got you. So, so the natural gas regulations were written. 192 was written. Then 195 was written after that. Correct? Absolutely. Was 192 completely finished before 195 was started? I, I don't think there's any such thing as <laughs> it's, it's, all, it's always been an ongoing <laughs> All right. All right. I, I stand corrected. Stand corrected. All right. Yeah. So what about the process with 192, uh, 195 with the liquids? Okay. Uh, the, the process with 195 is essentially the same thing as part 192, except we're dealing with liquid requirements versus gas, 
And if, if you'll let me park it there, I, I'll cover a little bit more uh, later on to make make these things come to sense okay. more. Uh, really, what I need to do is back up so that those that might be listening and are new, uh, we're throwing around all these acronyms, and I, I really need to try to clarify that before we start jumping off into Part 192, if I might. You've got the floor. All right. Let's talk about acronyms. You hear the term DOT. What does DOT mean? Well, who knows, unless you looked at some of this stuff. But DOT stands for U.S. Department of Transportation. So if we say DOT is doing a regulation, we're talking about U.S. Department of Transportation. The next one that you hear that gets people all tongue-tied is FEMSA, P-H-M-S-A, acronym for Pipeline and Hazardous Material Safety Administration. We're not going to talk hazmat today. Matter of fact, I couldn't. We're going to talk pipeline, so we'll talk about that specific part of FEMSA, and if you... Look at the pipeline part, Office of Pipeline Safety, OPS. We use OPS instead of having to say Office of Pipeline Safety. So that's some of the acronyms that we'll deal with. But as you well know, looking at the regulations, uh, there are a lot of acronyms that I have to keep uh, writing down or referring to or when... uh, we help develop uh, a, a pipeline safety program to keep up with the regulations. Uh, we would have these acronyms readied so you could click on it and it would pop up and tell you what that acronym stood for. So acronyms are here to stay. I need that uh, acronym pop up on my computer. Can you arrange that for me, please? If you get dot, you get All right. All right, if I may, can I jump off into pipeline safety, part 192, or, or get us headed in that Go direction? Go for it. You're... Okay, uh, as you have said, and we need to let everybody know this, federal pipeline safety regulations, please keep in mind states, but... What regulations do DOT cover? And as you indicated earlier, there are 10 regulations. Part 190 is pipeline safety enforcement regulatory procedures, not the interim regulation. Part 191 are transportation of natural and other gases by pipeline. Reports. Reports. To reporting 7,100 forms, etc. Part 192, transportation of natural and other gases by pipeline, minimal federal safety regulations. And if you were, you believe that minimum term, you're wrong. Because if you go in and look at the regulations and changes made, a lot of the regulations are written based on state of the art. So don't get carried away saying we're just doing the minimum. Uh, We're doing the maximum in most cases. Part 193, electrified natural gas, LNG. Part 194, response plans on onshore oil pipelines. 
Part 195, transportation of hazard liquid pipelines. Part 196, protection of underground pipelines for excavator activity. Part 198, regulation for grants to aid state pipeline programs. In other words, the state comes to DOT and gets funding to have their state uh, programs to do the intrastate facilities. And then Part 199 and Part 40, which is drug and alcohol. Again, I don't know anything about it. I don't take it, so I can't talk about it. <laughs> okay, well, 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 good. So we've got we've got those ten parts out of the total almost seventeen hundred that's in Title Forty Nine. That, like I said, we've we've lived our our lives through. Uh, 192 and 195 are probably the the spots that I've lived most of my life um, dealing with gas or dealing with with liquids uh, design and 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 operation and maintenance and that type of thing. So, how do you do? You want to uh, drill down a little bit and talk about 190 uh, 92 a little bit there? Yes, yes. Let's do that. We're going to focus. On the Code of Federal Regulations, CFR 49, Part 192. A funny thing, I've been in this for 60 years, and CFR, I I still get hung up. I look at CFR. What the heck does that acronym mean? I just said it. Code of Federal Regulations, CFR 49, Part 192. So, again, I, I don't have any problems when somebody gets wrapped around the axle on an acronym. We'll get it solved, but you're going to have to deal with it. Part 192, transportation of natural gas by pipeline, minimum federal safety requirements. I said it earlier, say it again because it's important. Current as of Amendment 192.134, there are 134 amendments. And actually, if you go in and look at the details on these, you may see a, a 134A, B, or C. That's where they have to go in and clean up, uh, fix, or, or something that got published in the Federal Register, and they have to do a legal process to make changes and fixes. And, and again, I will state that's August 1st, 2023. Uh, I didn't go, I probably should have gone in this morning and looked, but I don't think there have been any more amendments until 134. You get amendments on all these other regulations I'm talking about, like Part 195 liquid regulations. They've got the, the, the same process going on, and you can look and see what those have been and look at the details of it and see what regulation sections it covers. I told you about 1968 to date, and there are 2.5 changes, so keep that in mind. It's fluid. There, within Part 192, there are seven retroactive subparts. And if you've got old facilities pre-1968, you've got to deal with retroactive. Or if there are new regulations being published that are retroactive, any pipeline facility you got in operation has to comply. 
So that's A, which is the general requirements, I, which is corrosion control, which gets us a lot of headaches, K, operating, L and M is operating and maintenance, and I have those highlighted on my brain because whether I'm doing regulations or whether I'm doing engineering design work or whether I'm doing litigation or what have you, L&M seems to pop up. And if you stop and think, operating and maintenance is basically what we do with these pipelines. So L&M, the 600 and 700 series, you need to be familiar with and understand. Then we have O and P that's added to that requirement. Those are retroactive. Then there are nine non-retroactive subparts, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, J, N, that uh, are in the regulations. For me, in my code book, I have the retroactive uh, subpart black, and I have the others red. And, you know, you go to A, which is general, B, which is materials, C, which is pipe design, uh, D is design of pipeline components, uh, E is welding. And, uh, and so you just go down through the list until you get to where you want to. If you want to go to corrosion, you go to I, and you get that. If you want to go to operations, you go over to the 600 series. So, so, so Richard, so, so Richard. Richard, a couple of couple of thoughts here, if you don't mind. One, if something is retroactive, there is a time frame for the operating company to modify the system to be in compliance with the new regulations, right? That is that is correct, and an example of it. Good good point, and I appreciate it, Casey. Is back. When the regulations came in, MAOP, maximum allowable operating pressure, was a key to try to find out what these systems were being operated at and what they should be operated at and how they were tested, when they were tested, etc. And DOT had to give a warning, as you indicated, that between 1965 and 1970, you need to go back and look at your facilities and find out what their MAOP was. I was with an operating company when that came out, and that was a headache and a nightmare because the lack of paperwork, the back, the fact of common practices doing tests to pressure them up to make sure that everything was functioning properly, etc. So you had a window of opportunity to go back and whatever it was operating at, set that as your MAOP or find test records and other pertinent information to establish an MAOP. You had, you had systems that were tested for 60-pound systems but no records, et cetera, and the only thing you could find was the existing uh, pressures out at the regulator stations and all, and a 60-pound system may go to 20 pounds. So it behooved you to figure it out if at all possible. So if, if someone is sitting back and trying to understand what is retroactive and not retroactive, is there is there a, a, a table or something that 
that is out there that that specifies that, or do you just have to look at the regulation when it comes out and understand what subpart it belongs to to determine whether it's going to be retroactive or not? You, you kind of have to figure it out. Like I said, on the MAOP stuff, that's written into the regulation and, and specifically talks about pre-regulation, post-regulation type stuff. So you, you reading that, you know, you've got to do it. And, and I'll be honest, uh, when I left back in 2011 on the regulatory side, we still were coming up on systems that had never had the MAOP established correctly. And the sad story here is you have no MAOP, so you're at the mercy of the regulators to help you establish what that's going to be. So that should have been done correctly, and there should be record-keeping. Of course, nowadays you can't do anything without records. But good records on your MAOPs on these systems. So it was critical, and it's still critical. If you make a purchase and you don't of, of somebody else's facility, and you don't do good due diligence on establishing MAOT and pressure testing and updating, etc., you're in trouble. They can put you in jeopardy uh, just by picking those facilities up. So please, be I careful. I made a good uh, good living off of due diligence studies. Over the years, Richard. So yep. it's always good. Always good. Good points. Good points. Hey, we're uh, uh, getting close to to time. Um, are there other points that you want to get across, say, in the next two, three, four minutes? Well, the regulations we talked about, retroactive and non-retroactive, there are appendix. There's A, B, C, D, and E appendix. Excuse me, F appendix. Uh, probably one talking for 192 that comes up qualification of pipeline materials. There's a section there in uh, the uh, qualification of welders for low stress level pipe. A lot of people don't know what that means, but if you're welding at 20% specified minimal yield strength, which is the old Barlow calculation that uh, first time I ever saw it was in high school, and I wish I'd have paid attention back then, and I wouldn't have struggled getting through it once I got out in the industry. But uh, that requirement is for low-stress level pipe. You can't qualify welders to do that, but most companies, distribution, transmission, gathering, jurisdictional gathering, etc., use API or ASME, API 1104 uh, type welding procedures, and I, I guess if you're qualifying welders under that, why not do all of it that way and be done? But there is a section for small operators, etc., that they could use C as a qualification requirement. But you need only look at API or ASME requirements, and it's pretty apparent that you'd be better off using one of the industry standards instead of this uh, appendix. But uh, keep that in mind, if you will. I talked about GPTC, good place to go get assistance and some guidelines on what you might need to be doing or addressing, etc. But keep in mind, it's not the law, and it, they may conflict occasionally, not often, but they may. 
The other thing is regional facilities. I told you we got the Central Regional Office, which is in Kansas City. They have 11 states that they're responsible for. The Eastern Region Office is in Trenton, New Jersey. They have 15 states up in the New England area that they <clears throat> take care of. Western Region, Ontario, Canada, they have 12 states that they work out of the western side. We have the Southern Regional Office in Atlanta, Georgia. They have nine states taken in, Florida, Mississippi, etc. Then the Southwest Regional uh, Houston office, which takes care, of course, Texas, Louisiana, uh, Oklahoma, that kind of stuff. So you you can get access to all of this kind of information on DOT's website. Good luck trying to negotiate through there. It's out there. Uh, you just have to, to work with it to get it done. I mentioned uh, uh, WinDot. Uh, I have to give it credit for the work I do. When I was with the regulators, particularly in the training, uh, there was so much information that got to be covered in training and stuff that you just, I had three, three ring volumes of information and I'd spend half a day thumbing through it trying to find what you asked the question of. So, we, we had all the paperwork, and we knew how it linked up and all, but we didn't have the computer savvy and all to make it easy so I could get to a regulation. <clears throat> I could look at amendments. I could look at interpretations. I could look at advisory notices, etc., from that one location, and I could go back and forth without losing where I was working. So... There, it is an excellent piece of software that uh, we generated and then turned it over to Dave Bull and Dave Holston to develop that. I have to say this. There are several other organizations that have these regulations uh, so they are easy to get to with all the interpretations and so, et cetera with them. So certainly you can get guidance there. But I don't know how you negotiate the regulations without these electronic helpers. Well, it's it's you provided great clarification for me um, on a number of instances when we needed to get clarification about a certain portion of a regulation. And you actually pulled out, I guess, using wind to uh, find um, uh, evaluations that had been done or, or, or reasoning and, and deduction on why a certain class X is accepted, but Y is not accepted and, and, and good, good responses and clarifications, um, over the years. And so, so that database is, is always available as well. Right. Yes, DOT has all that stuff out there, and there are industry organizations that provide it. Just that <clears throat> I was in the throes of helping develop WinDot, and it, it did it. They did it exactly as we said we wanted it, and uh, we provide it to the federal and state folks, 
and uh, that, that's that's what they use, and uh, you know it's it's an excellent tool. I'm not saying you can't get it done elsewhere. That's just my preference. Gotcha, gotcha. All right, great stuff. Great. Um, anything else you want to add, Richard? No, if uh, other than if we want to continue this, you need only look at the areas that we did at a hundred thousand foot level, and know we could do weeks on months and months, if not years, of these types of sessions. And I think it's important for you to get with those that decide to look at this stuff and come up with questions and let's segregate them into pockets so that we can do 30 minutes on it if need be. And if if need be, there might be a want for a PowerPoint presentation or something with this information. I don't know about those out there, but I have a hard time writing this stuff down or getting it and listening. <laughs> so it's nice to have it, you know, pre-done and then let me listen. I understand. I understand. Okay. All right. Well, thanks, Richard, for taking the time to visit with us today. Um, and thanks my, thanks, my and thanks to all of you for listening, uh, tuning into this episode of the Energy Pipeline podcast sponsored by Caterpillar Oil and Gas. As Richard said, if you have any questions of him or of me or of anyone, if you have any comments or ideas for podcast topics, feel free to email me at kc.yost at oggn.com. I also want to thank my producer, Anastasia Willison-Duff, and everyone at the Oil & Gas Global Network for making this podcast possible. Find out more about the other OGGN podcasts at OGGN.com. Tongue twisted today. This is Casey Yost saying goodbye for now. Have a great week and keep that energy flowing through the pipeline. Come back next week for another episode of the Energy Pipeline, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.